Welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. As we connect the world, we reflect every facet of human interaction online. That's obviously brought enormous benefits, but it's also digitised the ways in which harmful things can happen. My guest today has spent over 30 years studying and combating online harms, identifying threats and helping to mitigate their impact. Mikano Hipponen is Chief Research Officer at WithSecure, a cybersecurity company based in Helsinki, and spends his days working to counter the steady and growing onslaught of toxic code coursing through the internet looking for vulnerabilities. Today, criminals are producing malware on an industrial scale. We've seen large-scale attacks on private organisations and public infrastructures such as electricity grids and hospitals. It's produced, marketed and sold in pretty much exactly the same way that legitimate benign software is. So it's a timely moment to have this conversation. Miko is the originator of the so-called Hippanen Law, which states that if an object is connected to the internet, it's vulnerable to being attacked. And proposed legislation unveiled by the EU mandates that products sold within the EU are designed, developed and produced in ways that mitigate cybersecurity risks. Miko's a great storyteller and adventurer. He'll relate in the podcast how he went on a journey to meet the authors of the first ever computer worm as, using his detective skills, he managed to determine their identities. His new book, If It's Smart, It's Vulnerable, is a concise but comprehensive account of cybersecurity from its origins to today and his own journey as a researcher during this period. A quick request, if you are enjoying the podcast, please do give us a quick five-star rating on whatever platform you use. It really does help us to build the wide community. Now on to my conversation with Miko. Miko, welcome to Foresight. Great to have you with us. Well, thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. So you and I met um, around 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I'm interested to get your thoughts on, and I know this is a big question to open with, but what are the big ways in which the internet threat landscape has evolved since since then? All right, let's think think this through. 2012, we had been living in the world of money-making criminals for maybe a decade by that time. The first like money-making spam operations with botnet started around 2003. But it was still very early time for the really major, big, organized online crime gangs. I would say the biggest difference is, is the power and wealth that the biggest gangs have been able to collect over the last decade, which makes them more powerful, more capable of recruiting better skills, which means they make more advanced attacks, which means they make even more money. So they're investing money into their attacks, which means they make more money. And then, of course, the other big change over the last 10 years is how much nation states have upped the ante with offensive cyber operations in espionage, spying, sabotage, but also in actual real cyber war. So I'm keen to get to criminal gangs and to uh, geopolitics and the kind of like the larger sort of, um, you know, geonational sort of like threats that we're facing in terms of national security. Just stepping back a little bit to the era where we, you know, I remember you and I talking about viruses and worms. And you write in, write in the book that we won the war, viruses are almost extinct. Now, talk us through that. How did viruses become almost extinct? How, how did we win at that? 
when viruses appeared as a problem, they were all being written for no real motive. Teenage boys were writing viruses for fun, for kicks, to see who could write the most quickest or fastest or more destructive spreader. And the way they accomplished that was that these, these were completely out of control. A piece of malware would infect one computer, then automatically spread from that computer to every other computer it could reach, and those would repeat the same thing. And with that, you get massively large outbreaks. You get front page news in New York Times, but it is out of control also for the creators. And if you're interested in, in making money or, or somehow being better in control of your malicious operations, that's not a good idea. And so slowly but surely, we've seen the traditional viruses and worms to disappear and they've been replaced with different kinds of Trojans or bots which are not out of control. So today, if you get infected by a piece of malware, that piece of malware is unlikely to spread further from your computer. It's being dis distributed over email or attachments or links or maybe exploit kits or websites. But once it reaches your computer, then your computer is in the hands of the attackers and, and it's not out of control. It's not going to spread automatically from there. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it from the point of view of the attackers. They want to stay below the horizon. They don't want to end up on front page of BBC or CNN.com. They want to make money and this is how they're better able to do it. So I remember when I first met you, you told me the story and, and you also detail it in the book of how you track down the authors of, of Brain A, which is one of the world's first, I think it was the world's first PC virus. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us that story? Because I think it's, it almost kind of like, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting, it's almost like reflecting on an era that's, that's gone now, it's past. Right, right. Brain A is so old, it, it predates my beginnings in this, in this industry. I started in 1991. And when I started, I went back to all the old viruses we had found before that. I, I was in touch with my colleagues at IBM and at McAfee, which already existed back then. And there were so few viruses in 1991 that you could just collect them all. And I, I collected them all and I analyzed them all to understand how all of these different technologies worked, including Brain.A, and Brain.A is from 1986. So that's, it is obviously the oldest PC virus we've seen. There's a couple of viruses for things like Apple II before that, but for PCs, that's where we start from. So fast forward to 2011. So the 25th anniversary of Brain is, is here. And our marketing team has a meeting that, hey, it's gonna to, to be 25 years for viruses. We should do something about this. Should we do something like a campaign for raising awareness of malware issues? And I told them that that's a boring idea. Why don't, why don't I just go and try to find the guys who wrote the virus? Because I had an idea that they would be findable because there is an address and two names embedded inside the code of the virus. And off you went. Well, we did a bit of planning, tried to get visas to Pakistan because that's where the address was pointing to. And I, I went off with two of my friends who who were documenting the trip to Pakistan and back. And the funny thing is that the, the address which is embedded inside Brain.A is the address where the two brothers who wrote the original Brain Virus were still today. In fact, they're still there today. This All this happened 10 years ago and, and I'm still in touch with these guys and they are still there in Lahore all the way to this day. 
And I found the guys, we had a great chat. We spoke about like what they were thinking in 1986 when they changed the world forever and how, how frustrated they were themselves because like anyone else, they're fighting modern malware problems. They, they've had their own computers infected by viruses multiple times over these years. And it is a problem they themselves started. But of course, they had no idea in 1986 what they really started. And of course, I guess they were thinking about PCs. They were thinking about uh, desktop computers. And today, the way that most of us experience the internet is through mobile, mobile devices. Um, just social networks alone, I think people are spending more than two hours. The average internet user spends more than two hours a day on social networks, um, you, largely through the mobile internet. How have you seen that change within the security landscape? What has mobile and particularly social done from your perspective? Well, two massive shifts have happened because of this mobile revolution. Um, first, it has massive implications to our privacy. Um, second, it also has massive implications to our security, both. The, the things it does to our privacy are horrible because we are now the first generation in mankind's history which can be tracked from cradle to the grave because we carry these tracking devices on us everywhere we go. And there is no option. Like you, we, there's no going back. If you want to live without using modern technology, without mobile phone, without internet connectivity, you will look like, you know, Stone Age. You, know, you, you can't live in modern society without using these technologies. And that means that we are doing the trade-off of paying for all of these online services and for the use of these mobile devices by giving away all of our data. That's just the way it is today. However, the bright side is that mobile devices are much better security-wise than traditional computers. And I don't think they get the credit that they should be getting for this. Many people think that mobile phones are, are you know, like small computers or maybe, you know, they're not real computers, like real computers are. Well, from security point of view, they are superior. And the reason is very simple. They, they have no legacy, especially iPhone, which, was, which came 15 years ago, was built from the ground up. And, and it is a much more restrictive device than, than your computers. Computers compute. You can use them to create things. You can write code on your Windows or MacBook, and then you can run the code on that very same computer, and you can give it to your friends, and they can do the same thing. You can't do that on your iPhone or on your Android or on your iPad. They are read-only devices from coding point of view. And that is a very, very restrictive model, but it's also a very secure model. So I'm interested to get your sense of the way in which there are so many, we're constantly under attack. There are new kinds of malware being detected all the time. I'm really interested to get a sense of what it's like to be in your shoes when a new piece of malware, I don't know, say a new piece of ransomware is detected. What happens next? How do you know whether it's something that's significant or not? Mm. To do the kind of work we need to do at, at WITSecure, we have to have good visibility, internet-wide visibility into what's happening. Um, we have a very large range of operators and telecom companies as partners. We have over 200 of them that we work with, which means we, we have great visibility into network flows and overall 
disruptions in the network connectivity and things like that. But for the purpose of things like ransomware, it really comes down to two things. Our customers getting in touch, saying that they, they believe they have a problem with something. And maybe even more importantly, our bait networks. That means our, our honeypots, our honey nets, our canary networks. So we operate hundreds, thousands of devices on the internet, which look like old, outdated, vulnerable computers or servers. And we run them there for the sole purpose that they get infected by attackers, by spammers or by phishing attacks or, or by ransomware attackers. And when those get infected, they create an alarm on our end. And we've tried automating everything at our end. We try to collect the samples automatically, automatically import them into our systems where we do all possible analyses on them, throw these samples on different operating systems and run them and see what happens, what changes. And then we automatically do a comparison to all the existing malware samples we've ever seen. And with that, well, in ideal situation, it's all hands-free. The machines will be able to tell that this is bad, this should be blocked, and they will automatically add blockings for the type of malware we just found and distribute that to all of our clients across the world. So in an ideal situation, no humans do nothing. And this is the big differentiator between attackers and defenders today. The attackers, thankfully, are still mostly doing their work manually. So it's a human writing code and deploying it. And when we block that, they will have to respond manually and rewrite it and change their domain names or change the emails they're spamming out, which means the reaction times from defenders are very fast because it's automated. And the reaction times from the attackers are slow because th those are done by humans. And of course, it's not just the bad guys that are writing um, malware. One of the many things I, I really learned in your book that I thought was fascinating is that law enforcement writes and deploys malware. Is this something that is happening widely or something that is only happening in limited cases? Um, it, it has become the norm. Maybe not writing malware by, them, by themselves, but definitely using malware. And it's, it's just an extension of, of what authorities need to be able to do. If you look at how technology has changed the work of law enforcement, when, when telephone network became a thing, obviously cops needed a way to tap onto phone calls and they got the needed jurisdiction to do it and they would, you know, with court order contacted telcos that we would need a tap on this phone line. Then when mobile phones became a thing, they got the same rights on mobile devices, then for tracking text messages, then for tracking email. But nowadays, when the vast majority of the, the communications that goes out to the network from our computers or from our mobile phones is encrypted, encrypted with, I don't know, WhatsApp or Signal or, or I don't know, just using Facebook, all of that is encrypted one way or another. That means that the traditional taps that cops have always had, if they put that on, for example, on this discussion, we're doing this interview right now over Zoom, which means it's end-to-end -end encrypted. If they tap this line, all they get is that Mikko and Greg had a discussion for 36 minutes at this hour, but they have no idea seeing what we were being discussing on this call. The only way they can do that is to have something running on our computer, running on your computer or on my computer, or, well, there's the option that they could somehow install a video camera to which would record all of this, and then they would get all the contents of the call. 
And that's the reason, really, why malware has become such an important tool for law enforcement investigations. And that's why cops use malware more than ever. Now, we started the conversation and you mentioned sort of like the rise of criminal gangs and the, 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 essentially the kind of like the professionalization of malware. How do you kind of characterize where we are now with these organized criminal, uh, criminal gangs? Presumably, this is, this is a globally significant problem and operates in, in multiple uh, different territories. That's right. The biggest typically Russian organized crime gangs should be considered to be unicorns. Just like we think about technology unicorn companies and, you know, highly valuable technology startups. Well, these are highly valuable technology startups as well. Granted, they will never do an IPO. They will never be a merger or an acquisition. But you look at the revenues they're making. You look at the operations they're running. You look at the facts that the biggest Russian crime gangs have lawyers working for them, have HR units, have physical offices, pay, pay salary, uh, monthly salaries to their crackers and exploit writers and, and people who bring in infected machines, which can be used as a way in to gain access to these devices. So they are becoming more and more organized and they start to resemble traditional real world organized crime gangs in their organization. And it's quite fascinating that there's been surprisingly little overlap between cyber organized cybercrime gangs and traditional real-world cybercrime gangs. The only overlaps we've ever seen are around money laundering, and even that's been very, very small. So this is organized crime, but it's a completely new kind of an organized crime. So you think there is already a unicorn criminal gang? I do think there's several. I think all of them are Russian right now. And, and this worries me because it means that they can afford to invest more into their attacks, especially they can invest more into hiring better skill sets. And as an example of what that means, um, we've already seen at least two cases where Russian cybercrime gangs have been running fake front-end companies, typically looking like uh, Western security companies doing penetration testing, for the sole purpose of recruiting security professionals to work for them. Fully remote positions with great salaries, and we're doing penetration testing projects for our customers. And the end result is they end up hiring people like me who, who, who do penetration testing or other security research who don't even realize, or who definitely don't realize that they're working for the enemy. And then they're given tasks that, okay, scan the network of this client, find all the weak spots, try to break in, and then write a report how you would break into this company. And that report is never sent to the customer because it's not a customer. They have no idea that they are being scanned by professional pen testers who actually are working for Russian cybercrime gangs. But many of these cybercrime gangs presumably store their wealth in Bitcoin. Do you know what the impact of the tanking of crypto has had on these uh, criminal gangs? The biggest gangs have been operating for years. Um, I, I think it's maybe beneficial to think about this from the point of view of a cybercrime gang, because many of the biggest gangs we are, we're looking at right now um, were around three, four, five years ago. So around four or five years ago, many of these gangs had like 10 million euros or 10 million dollars in their wealth. And of course, all of that was in Bitcoin because that's how it's untouchable. They don't like to keep their wealth in rubles or dollars or euros or pounds. And if you had 10 million in Bitcoin five years ago, that is close to a billion today, even after the drop. So granted, we went close to 
$60,000 in Bitcoin valuation and now it's 20 something in, in, in valuation, but it's still quite a rise from where it was five years ago when it was like 2000 or 1500 per Bitcoin. So these gangs have considerable wealth at their disposal and, and the really worrying thing about what they could do with that money in the future is, is try to tap into machine learning and AI experts of the world, which still is the missing piece of the puzzle for the organized crime gangs. Yeah, that's interesting. I was going to ask you about this. There's so much talk now about how quantum is going to undermine internet security, in particular, you know, cryptographic codes that enable, you know, online finance, banking, that kind of thing. Um, how do you think about that, these, 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 these looming threats? I'm a bit split because, on the other hand, um, we regularly see criminal hackers using cutting-edge technologies. They, I've learned of many new technologies from, for the first time by that we run into an attack which is using that thing. Then again, many of the most successful and, and biggest cybercrime gangs, they like to do what works. Uh, as long as they're able to use their existing technologies to make money, why would they invest their time and, 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 and effort into doing something when they don't need to. I mean, this is the main reason why most of the attacks we still see today are targeting Windows computers with the same kind of attacks we've been seeing for years and years. They still work. They can still make a lot of money with those attacks, so why, why would they change? The thing that is likely to open up the, the um, access for cybercrime gangs into new technologies like AI and quantum is the fact that as we are seeing more and more people with the skills to do these kind of things, it's becoming more likely that they could be hired to go to the dark side. Right now, and for the last couple of years, if you know how to program TensorFlow to create machine learning frameworks, there's been no lack of companies which would love to hire you with your skills, regardless of where you live. So you can make a nice living for yourself and for your family with the skills you have without breaking the law. Like, why would you break the law if you don't have to? However, these systems are becoming easier and easier to use. There's more and more experts being trained. The barriers are coming down and we're getting closer to the time where the criminals can actually start to play a part of this and, are, and would be able to successfully recruit people with these kinds of expertise. Another threat we face is the fact that our devices, our homes, our offices, our cars are all connected now. And, and you reference this um, in, in, the, in your book, if it's smart, it's, it's vulnerable. Um, the attack surface is increasing. You've created Hipponen's law to describe this. I hope I pronounced that correctly. How can you, can you outline what that law is? How it's a very pessimistic law, I'm afraid. Um, it simply means when we add connectivity and functionality to devices, they become vulnerable. So when we take everyday appliances and we make them smart, they become hackable. And the example I always use is, is, is a mechanical wristwatch. If you think about a mechanical Rolex or Omega, there's no chip in it. There's no connectivity in it. And that makes it unhackable. I mean, how do you hack a mechanical watch? Well, you don't. Then when you look at smart watches, like Apple Watch or Android watches, of course, those are hackable. Now, they might be hard to hack, but that doesn't change the fact that they are hackable. When we add connectivity and functionality, things become hackable and they become vulnerable. And that's the Hyppenen law. And yes, it is a very pessimistic law, but it's also true.
Well, we're going to have to start thinking that, about that more and more in, in our own homes and uh, thinking about how we make them secure. But in terms of you know the bigger picture, we're clearly at a period where uh, we're seeing significant geopolitical tension. You mentioned it at uh, the beginning of the conversation. And there are so many reports now that there are real fears that this kind of, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine could lead, lead to a kind of all-out war between superpowers. But I, I guess the question I have to ask you is, surely we've had all-out war between the superpowers for quite a long time. It's been happening in the digital realm for, for many years. Yep. Then again, what do we actually call a war and what we don't call a war? Uh, this might sound academic, but actually words matter. And if something isn't war, we shouldn't be calling it a war. So, for example, whenever we see some nation state getting caught um, spying on another nation state using cyber attacks, the headlines always speak about cyber war. And, and clearly that's wrong. I mean, espionage is espionage. Spying is spying. Neither of those are war, and we shouldn't be calling something a war if it isn't war, because we need that word for real cyber war, such as the kind of attacks we're seeing right now happening in Ukraine, because Russia and Ukraine are at war, and there's definitely cyber attacks happening, coming from nations, the nations themselves, targeting the infrastructure of the attacker or the defender, and that's what cyber war is really about. And I don't think we'll ever see a cyber war between two countries where the only fighting would be in cyber. I think it's all, always going to be one of the theaters of war or, or, or one of the places where the war is being fought out. Wars are fought in different domains, land, sea, air, space, cyberspace. Um, it's one of the challenges, though, for security professionals like yourself that fundamentally the problems of the internet, or on the internet, I should say. They scale, they become global problems that are really, they're bigger than both companies and organizations and governments are able to manage. The phrase I find myself repeating in the book over and over again is that the internet is the best thing and the worst thing which has happened during our lifetime. And it's just amazing how much it, it changed the world in, 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 in a generation. And we will forever be remembered as the first generation of mankind who, who went online because Internet will be part of mankind's future forever. And the benefits are huge, but the downsides are huge as well. If you look at how crime used to be local and now crime is global, how privacy died, how today elections are won and lost through the influence operations run by, by nation states, it's, it's quite remarkable how much the world changed. And almost all of these things are exactly the same phenomenon. You just look at from a different angle. For example, if you look at how much the world of the, the life of minorities changed when Internet came around, we got huge benefits. I mean, people who belong to different kinds of minorities really were pretty alone when they were, let's say you were different and you were living in a small town somewhere, there was no one like you, you wouldn't find anyone like you. Then internet comes around and you realize that there's tons of people just like you. You're, no, you're not a weirdo, you're not different, you're just rare. Now that's exactly the same phenomenon as we see with online radicalization or, we, or with groups where people daydream about school shootings and, and encourage each other to do that as well. So it's the same phenomenon. People find support 
for the things they are thinking about from the internet. We get the best sides of the internet and the worst sides of the internet at the same time. So we're pretty much up against time now, Miko, but I, I want one final question, if that's okay, please. Um, two, I, I guess there's two parts to it. First, I, first is what keeps you up at night? And the second is what gives you hope? I'll, I'll combine those because <laughs> there's tons of things that I, I, I worry about, but we have this um, unwritten rule amongst security professionals that we don't like to float publicly ideas about attacks that could be done. Just That's just giving ideas to the enemy. We don't like to do that. And regardless of that, um, I sleep very well. I'm, I'm an optimist and people are often surprised about that. Like, how, how can you be an optimist? But you've seen all this, all this stuff. And that's true. I've spent my life, 31 years now, looking at the worst parts of what technology can bring to us, including all kinds of crime and all kinds of horrible things that people spread online. And I am an optimist because I choose to be an optimist. And I, I stole this from a, a polar explorer, a Norwegian guy, which I met a couple of years ago. A guy, he's maybe in his 70s now. He spent his life skiing across Greenland and North Pole and South Pole. And he told me how he has seen the, the climate change by his own eyes, how ice is thinner and thinner every year, things like that. So I asked him about his opinion about the future of climate change, and he's, he told me he's an optimist. And I was surprised, like, how the hell can you be an optimist? You've seen how bad it is. And he told me that it's too late to be a pessimist. And that struck a chord with me, and I've, I've decided to do the same. I'm an optimist because I choose to be an optimist because it's too late to be a pessimist. That's a great note to end on. Mika, always absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much. Um, best of luck with the book. Uh, it's a great read and I really highly recommend it if you want a really great sense of what's happening uh, in the world of security right now, internet security. Mika, thank you so much for joining us uh, and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. If you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the wired community. Thank you so much. <laughs>